podcast one production. From the inside with Peter Ricks. This is part three of Peter's conversation with the founder and executive chairman of music and touring company Chug Entertainment, Michael Chug. After building successful careers as both a manager of Australian acts and tour promoter of both Australian and overseas artists, the modern day era saw Michael take on different turns, touring different genres, breaking new artists in Australia, and his return to managing artists. So, so if we move forward a bit, because yeah. here you are, not you haven't survived. You've prospered. You know, you're a you're a, yeah, you're was, a tribute to uh, was, independence and smart relationships, right? Yeah. Tell me about how it now is, because between AEG and Live Nation, the global business of promoting shows, because. You know, bless you, and we'll talk about this in a bit in a minute about management because you've diversified significantly. But still and all, mm. here you are competing really constantly against two publicly listed companies well, whose ju- journey of life is to shut out all of you out of the game. When I when Ganinsky and I split up, he really didn't believe I'd do it because I'd been threatening. Anyway, when we split up, there were acts that I kept... And there are acts that he kept. Yeah. Like he kept Billy Joel and other acts I kept, Chili Peppers, mm. Bon Jovi, things like that. So we split it all up, sort of. Mm. And until this day we've never really gone head to head competing against each other for acts. We always, you know, have this friendship Love, hate. Yeah, there's a, bro- there's a brothers in arms. So we, you know, and obviously I was lucky in a few ways. I mean, the, the first year after I'd left, I had two of the biggest acts in the world, the Chili Peppers and Santana, and the dollar dropped to 50 cents and I lost a fortune. And it was like, oh, God. Anyway, when I was at Frontier towards the end, my son... Nicholas kept saying to me, you've got to tour Blur. You've got to bring this band, English band, Blur out. And they didn't mean that much, but unbeknownst to me, I, Nicholas was burning the CDs and selling them to all his mates at school. And so there was a pretty big underground thing on this band. So we bought them out at Frontier. We sold out two awards, a couple of festival halls. It was very successful. Yeah. We had a harbour cruise and I was sitting on the back of the Harbour Cruise, this is 99, with a, an English agent, young English agent called Ian Huffam. He was the Blur's agent. And he said to me, he said, I want you to look at this act who in the next 18 months will be the biggest act in the world. He said, I can't tell you who it is, but he's in a big boy band. And, you know, take that, it had never been that big here. I remember, I think, Danny brought him out and they played to half a house at the end of time. Anyway, I said, you don't mean the little fat bloke in Take That. The little fat bloke. Well, well, he was. That would be Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams. Yes, of course. So Robbie had had huge hits in England and Europe. He Mm. was monstrous and also in New Zealand. 
huge in New Zealand. Here, he hadn't had any hits. Rob, the program manager today of him at the time, Rob Logan, was it? No one would play the record, the records, Robbie's records. Too much of a pop star. They just wouldn't play it. Anyway, Dean Buchanan All right. had just started Nova. Yeah. So I went to Nova and said, listen, you've got to promote Robbie Williams with me and um, you've got to play Robbie's records. And by now, you know, I'd been to a couple of shows in England and he was an unbelievable entertainer. Mm. I mean, the best I've ever seen. Mm. So it, it was starting to get around then. I get, oh, the record company, EMI at the time, ring me up and they go, you can't do the tour with Nova. I said, why not? They said, because Rob Logan at Today FM said, and he was running the whole network, he said, if, if you give the Robbie Williams tour to Nova, they will never play a Robbie Williams tour. And I just said to the guy at EMI, tell him to fucking put that in writing. I'll get the front page all across Australia. Well, he didn't actually play it at the time anyhow, did he? No, that's the joke. Yeah. Then, of course, we start the Robbie Williams promotion. I can't remember if that tour was The Ego Has Landed or that was the next tour, but we did the huge build-up to well, you the did, tour. You did a smaller tour and yeah, then you did the Yeah, we bought him out. We sold 10,000 tickets in Perth. We sold out the Adelaide Entertainment Centre. We did one-and-a-half shows at Rod Laver, one-and-a-half shows at Sydney Entertainment Centre and um, sold out or... Did three goals out in Brisbane and Tamer Centre. Then we went to New Zealand and played 100,000 people in two outdoor shows in Auckland and 50,000 people in Wellington, right. where he was monstrous. Yeah. So that tour had been done, and within three months of him leaving the country, he'd sold a million records. Had he had four singles in the charts, you and, know, bigger than Ben Hur. And then we bought him back and sold half a million tickets. But you see, mate, you did the same thing with, with Coldplay as well. Yeah, we did. I mean, they, they were always... Dixie Chicks, we've done yeah. similar, not on that level. Yeah, but, but the, establish it first and then move to the yeah, major arenas. I mean, but then... Coldplay, I'll never forget, you know, first tour we did was just clubs and the second tour was we did the Horden, which they actually filmed. And we were in the van going back to the hotel and Chris Martin said to me, this is it. He said, I never want to be any bigger than what we are now. <laughs> you know, they used to go on stage in those early days and they'd just stand there, wouldn't talk to their audiences and look at them now. Yeah. Mind you, Live it's the only act that Live Nation actually has managed to steal off me. Yeah, but it's a bloody shame because they don't well, know that it's been done, done with the same Davinsky affection. They've done a few times too. Yeah. So we have a very united front when it comes to trying to screw up Live Nation. So... You, you're so we fight the fight. We're still getting young acts. We've got, um, you know, we. I certainly, you know, through my friendship with another Tasmanian, Rob Potts, we now pretty much do all the country music in Australia. We have our CMC Rocks Festival in southern Queensland near Ipswich every March that gets, sells out 45,000 tickets across the weekend. I'm partners with... Danny Rogers from Lunatic in the Laneway Festival, festivals, yeah. which we tour. See, that was a, that the way that happened was I was at Earl Farm, Camp Eden, it was. No, it was the Golden Door. And this young Jewish guy from Melbourne came over to me. He said, Are you Michael Chug? And I said, Yeah. He said, I'm Jerome Barazio. I uh, own a couple of small 
club is called St. Jerome's in Laneways behind Myer in Melbourne. He said, my mate and I, Danny, we just did a festival in the Laneways called the Laneway Festival. I thought, shit, that's a pretty good idea. So the next few months later they had the second one and I flew down and saw what they were doing. And Matthew, who I'd brought on, Matthew Lazarus Hall, had come on to run the company. We, we thought, let's take it to Sydney. So we brought Laneway to Sydney and we did it down in the rocks in the laneways around the basement. Right. And uh, it started to work okay. And it was all little indie, unknown yeah. indie bands from overseas. And some of the early bands were Monsters of Men and Munford and Sons. And so then we went to Brisbane and we started it there. And then we went to Perth and started it there and then we started in Adelaide. Then because of all the work I do in New Zealand, we started it in Auckland and then five years ago we took it into Singapore, which was met with a lot of, you know, criticism and derision. Oh, there's no kids that are into that music in Singapore and, of course... They came out of the woodwork. They came out of the woodwork and, you know, the last... Three in Singapore have all had like 13,000 people. So we've got that. We've, we've broken Florence and the Machine out of that. Uh, Flume was on that as an unknown. Last year we toured Flume nationally, sold 90,000 tickets. A lot of acts have broken out of the Laneway Festival. So you've, we've got that and we've, you know, we've got CMC. Uh, How do you fit it all in, mate? Oh, good. I've got a great team. I mean... Susan Heyman, who's the managing director, I suppose, of Chug Entertainment these days. I mean, she started off as an intern 11 years ago and she's now regarded as um, one of the best young Mm. music industry people in the world. But you've come, it's like 360 because really you're back, I mean, not that you're still promoting, but you're back managing acts again. Well, we started... I didn't want to do it. It what, started initially. You didn't want to do Shepherd. No, no, let me tell you. I didn't want to get back into management. You know, Billy had died. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't want to get into it anyway. Brian Brown's a good friend of mine, Jack Thompson and all that. Brian kept hassling me about these young kids from the Northern Beaches, the Lineback Brothers. They had a band called Lime Cordial. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and then Baruka Tao, who was the old piano multi-instrumentalist in Yothi Indi from PNG started ringing me. And he said, Chuggy, I got these kids that I taught at school in Papua New Guinea how to play music and sing and they're now living in Brisbane and their father's a heavyweight accountant in Papua New Guinea and... They really believe in the kids and they think they're going to really do something. He said, oh, Chuggy, they're amazing. He kept ringing me and ringing me and ringing me and I'm going, no, no, I don't want to fucking know about any of this. And I've got Brian Brown in one ear, him in the other. So I said, all right. And I said to Susan and the girls in the office, these three young siblings are coming down from Brisbane on Friday to do a few songs in the back office. And uh, the old man flew them down and in walked these three kids and they're very nervous, sweaty, nervous. The young guitar player, Jay, who writes with them, with them. And so, you know, they thought they were coming to sing a couple of songs in my office. Um, 
They'd already been to Sydney. They did a hard rock, some talent quest at the hard rock that got them into Sydney and previously to this where they were told by the judges that they'd never make it. Oh. Anyway, they came in. I love those stories. They came into the office and uh, they opened their mouths and it was fucking unbelievable. This whole vocal thing was like the sounds of Pacific. Mm. And a couple of the songs were pretty good. The old man had paid for an EP. He'd done some silly digital deal in America. He, you know, he was trying really hard to get him going. And I turned around to Susan and I said, what do you think? She said, wow. So they never played electrically live. They'd never done very much at all. So I rang up Sebastian Chase at MGM, the independent distributor and said, I want you to put this EP out. So we did a deal with Sab. Then the old man told me that he'd booked a gig for the consulate in New York to play at the summer stage in Central Park. And I said, um, what are they paying the airfares? And he went, no, no, we're getting paid 200 bucks. I've gone, what? <laughs> I, thought, oh, I thought, oh, here we go. But by this time I'd been down about... Saturday before I finally bit the bullet and I went down to the Metro and the kids, Lime Cordial, were playing in the Bear's Den, which is a 300-seater room upstairs there. Yeah. And I've walked in and there's 300 of the most beautiful young teenage women I've ever seen in my life going nuclear, screaming, trying to pull the band off stage. And I went, fuck me. So all of a sudden I've got two bands. So I thought, what are we going to do about this show in New York? So what I did was I rang these couple of mad South African friends of mine, Carolyn and Misha, who uh, are pretty crazy. I'd met them at a, they were trying to get into the music business. I'd met them at some conferences in London and we became friends. And I knew they had this mad um, festival three hours out of, Johannesburg called Oppy Copy on an old farm, game farm and all that, that one of the families owned. And it just happened to be two weekends before the Central Park gig. So I rang him up and said, you've got to put Shepherd on your festival. And uh, they said, yeah, sure. So then I rang England and spoke to a promoter there who uh, was running a big company called Mama Concerts, who he later sold to... HMV for 350 million pounds before they went bankrupt. Anyway, I rang him up. He had a big festival called Wilderness in Oxfordshire. And he said, yeah, I'll put them on. They can do a little thing on the charity stage and they can play acoustic on the bandstand and I'll put them on the main stage. They can play before another Aussie band called Temper Trap. Mm. Anyway, then I rang my friend Sat Bizzler in LA who who ran conferences and was breaking young beings. I mean, he was very responsible for Coldplay seeing the light of day in America. He was highly responsible for Katy Perry getting a break. He'd helped a lot of bands. And I rang Sat up and said, I need you to help me do a show in LA, maybe the Viper Room where we can get a couple hundred people to come and see this band called Shepherd. And um, I sent him some CDs, EPs and... So all of a sudden we had a South African gig, an English so festival, New York, and then finished in LA. So 
So it was okay. I mean, they, this was only like their fourth or fifth. Well, I was going to say the father must have immediately thought that you were a miracle worker. Well, because the airfare component would have been slightly less than it had been the other way. Oh yeah, but he, he put a lot of money into the band. I mean, he that whole the whole early period. Um, but I knew how to not spend it. Yeah, or spend it wisely. But um, so when we're in LA, Sat Bizler fell in love with the band. He has a radio show that in those days was on twelve big FMs every Sunday night. Now it's on sixty all over the world called Passport Approved and um, he interviewed the kids and they played their brilliant acoustic. Mm. It's been one of the big reasons we've got where we have. He, he played Let Me Down Easy, which was the first song off on the EP and an English programmer of the most progressive radio station in Portland, Oregon, who'd broken Monsters and Men, Munford and Sons, a lot of bands broke out of the station. He put us on air and um, within two weeks it had become the most requested song uh, on Portland Radio and it started to spread. And, uh, of course, there was nothing going on here at all. And Jay, the guitar player's brother, worked at Channel, works at Channel 9 here. He gave the CD to David Campbell. And David Campbell listened to it and went, shit, these songs are good. Googled the band up and saw what was going on in America, this whole underground thing. So he went to Paul Jackson. He was he works at Smooth. So he went to Jackson, who programs Nova, and hassled Jackson for, I don't know. To play. Two months to play Let Me Down Easy. So finally we came down to do... Campbell's TV show on that day, Jackson added "Let Me Down Easy," and it started to it started to take off here slowly, and we started to get airplay. We started to do a little bit of work, and then I took them around the world again, and we went to Portland, all um, New York. We did uh, the CMJ Festival Showcase Festival in New York. We. Um, Millie Millgate Sounds Australia has been a big supporter. So we went around the world again on the old man's money. By this time I'd got Steve Strange, the big agent in England, involved in the management. He'd heard the single at the ILMC one night when we were up in his mate's penthouse doing bad things and he got involved in management and I'd got an agent in America called Marsha Vlasic and we went around the world and the kids going to the boardrooms of the publishers and... Yeah everybody playing acoustically <laughs> and everything. And they wrote this song called Geronimo and the rest's history. Yeah, correct. Biggest, big, big record. Yeah. Wow. It's still, to this day, I mean, we can't get rid of it. It's like the albatross around our fucking neck. But it's yeah. making us a lot of money and it's like it's still doing an average in America of 80,000 streams a day. And it was released in March 2014. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part three of Peter's conversation with the founder and executive chairman of music and touring company Chug Entertainment, Michael Chug. In a moment, Michael reflects back on his career and his infamous moment in rock history where he hit the stage to a field of 40,000 Guns N' Roses fans. Do you ever look back at it? Yeah, the things you don't, you, you wish you'd done in the business? Regrets? No, not really. Yeah. Oh yeah, you look back. But I mean, when, when, when you, you know, when 
it's an extraordinary thing to say that you lost money out of the back of a band like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Gummy. Yeah. But I mean, it's it, true. but you know, there are times that we both know where money's been hard to find, and and in the middle of that somewhere, you know, your your love of it all is the motivating, the central motivating point of of your life, really. Yeah, but that right. that can be if you do it right, the money comes, and yeah. it always did. So, what what do you think of the business these days? Do you it's look- challenging. I mean, it's challenging. You've got all these corporate entities that are, you know, buying up the world and not doing ticketing companies that are ripping people off. Well, well, companies that own venues, but also promote the shows. That's well, AEG have been very good and I won't – they have not come into Australia as promoters. When they have an act they want to do in Australia, they do it with Ganinsky. So if you uh, – Occasionally I'll get one, but Live yeah. Nation. So if you were getting off the back of the boat from Bernie into Melbourne again, would you still go into – Would you, if you had the chance, would you still do it? Would you go – is there – with what you've learnt? No. Um I went Launceston, Melbourne, Sydney. Right. What I should have done, and I'll regret it till the day I die, I should have kept going. Overseas. Yeah. yeah. I'd be one of the biggest in the world and there wouldn't be any fucking Live Nation because we would have buried it early. Um, two final questions. Yes, sir. How many wine print T-shirts do you own? A wine print shirts, not yeah, T-shirts. Not T-shirts. Shirts, sorry. Uh well, I just did a big concert with my mate Big Daddy from Las Vegas uh, in Honolulu called Ocean Aid, where we raised all this money to put into getting all this shit out of the oceans. And while I was there, I bought another nine. Another nine to yeah. another nine Hawaiian print shirts. I got to lose a bit of weight because I only got two extra larges it, and won't fight. It, I don't want to burst the buttons. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So. Is the, does this mean? I'm up to about 280. Fucking Jesus Christ. Okay. And that's really the backstage uniform these days, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe not in the middle of winter here, but it is a memory that I have forever. Of me Joe. wearing and shorts. Shirts. Shorts. And, and shorts. Yeah. I still do that. Yeah. So then there's a book that you, that's been written that you're a, that you're a part of that, that actually uses the words. Uh, hey, you in the guy in the black T-shirt. Well, that's – I wrote that. It's my biography. I wrote it with Ian Shedden. Right. Uh, Mark Pope actually started it and I'll never forget we spent uh, four days at Trevor Smith's house in Byron Bay with a tape recorder telling stories to each other and we were very stoned and it was very funny stuff but Mark couldn't make it – couldn't put it on paper. He couldn't make it laugh on the paper so – we looked around, we talked to different writers, Peter Fitz. Simon and, Fitz, Simon, and yeah. They all wanted all the money. You know? it was like, <laughs> so Ian Shedden, who used to play drums with the Saints and writes to the Australian, is a good friend. So she, I flew Sheddy and his wife and kids up to Phuket. We spent a week at my villa there and we started and we wrote the book and he captured it in my, like so many people around the world say to me, I sat up all night reading your book and I, it was as though you were sitting here telling it to me in your voice. Mm. And that's what I was really pleased about. <laughs> and we've sold a lot of copies all around the world. But Pan, you know, they've discontinued it. 
I think we've now got the rights and we're looking at doing a, an audio book and expanding it. So how, how many times was there a bloke in a black T-shirt giving somebody in the front row a bad time over the years? I mean, oh, that yeah. was the moment, wasn't it? Well, it was actually at it was Guns and Guns Roses. Guns and Roses at Eastern Creek. Eastern Creek. Creek. There were 40,000 kids outside. It's on the, the album, I believe. They used the... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the police, Sting took my... Uh, they taped Sting's... No, it was Billy Joel, Brian Ruggles taped one of my intros and they took that round the world. And one night I was at home and I got a call and uh, this voice said to me, where are you? Are you here? I said, where are you? She said, Barcelona at a bull ring. I said, why are you calling me? She said, I just heard you. Introduce Sting. They recorded it? Yeah, and, and they were all, yeah, they were all using it, my intros. Anyway, we were at Eastern Creek. There were 40,000 kids outside the gates. It was 40 degrees. You couldn't see the gates. They were behind the ridge of the hill. And Andrew Tatray, my long-time site manager, security guys on the walkie-talkie, says, here they come. And all of a sudden, on top of the, the hill, we were all these kids. Coming. All in fucking black T-shirts, all getting ready to run down the hill and fall over and... I just yelled out, hey, you in the black fucking T-shirt, stop running. Did they stop? They stopped, laughed and came down orderly. It was a big day that day for Chuggy stuff. I mean, I didn't find out until about a year later, but Mark Pope's brother, Jeff, was the head policeman from Blacktown who was running, actual running the gig. And they'd been really great. We'd walked through it, you know, the whole... Set up, they'd send an undercover cop to South America to see what Guns N' Roses were really all about. And, you know, I got this call to go down to the police, and this is like just four Guns N' Roses gone. So I go down there, and he says, Listen, you got to do something about those fires. Because I had Dr. Chun, we'd even set up a proper hospital, and it was full of kids who were getting asphyxiated by the Fumes. the dead grass that the idiot. Oh, he'd, he'd caretaker had only just mowed cut. the lawns and yeah. The, yeah, great. <laughs> and all the plastic and styrofoam. And there were fires all over the hills and they were all going, falling like flies. So I walked out on the stage and about this, about 10 minutes before they're due to go on and actually it was actually there. I walked out on stage and I went up to the microphone and um, unbeknownst to me, Trevor Smith had planted Nick Bennett from Triple M in the audience with a microphone. So I went up to the microphone and said, listen, Sydney, I don't give a fuck what you do. I don't care if you stamp on them in your bare feet, roll on them or piss on them, but put those fucking fires out now or Axel and I are getting in the helicopter and going home and you can all get fucked. Of course, all the fires stopped. Nine months later, I'm in Perth on a tour and I had this old friend there, he was a Autistic guy called John in his 40s, mad rock fan. He comes running over the car park and um, Charlie Fox was involved too. And he goes, M -m Mr. Chug, you were... I said, hi, John. He said, you, you, you were fantastic at Guns N' Roses. And I went, what, you were there and you didn't come and say hello? He said, no, 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 I heard you on the radio. <laughs> he broadcast broad the whole Charlie thing. Charlie Fox and... They had broadcast my entire rave because Nick Bennett thought it was Axel. Oh. 
They broadcast my entire rave across the Triple M network. Michael? 1991, 93. Anyway, I rang up Charlie Fox and said, you fucking prick. He said, we were wondering how long it would take you to find out. <laughs> Michael, you are one of life's treasured creatures. Ble- uh, bless dear. you. It's and nice to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for coming in to visit. Okay. It was, we could talk for hours. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has been. Is a, anybody going to interview you? No. Yeah. No, no, I'm hiding. We've got to sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Chug. There are more great interviews still to come with From the Inside. In the meantime, take a listen to the conversations Peter Ricks has had with some of the legends of the Australian music business at podcastone.com.au or on the Podcast One app. From the Inside with Peter Ricks is recorded in the studios of Podcast One.